Hello, this is Alex Granados, reporter for Education NC, and welcome to EdTalk. My guest today is Lee Teague. Lee is the recently named Executive Director of the North Carolina Public Charter Schools Association. Lee, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So first of all, for listeners who don't know you, tell us a little about yourself, uh, where you grew up, and how you ended up interested in education. I grew up in Greensboro. I uh, lived there most of my life with the short exception of a uh, going to college at Clemson and then down uh, then in Washington for a while. Uh, I moved to Charlotte and lived there for about 15 years, worked in, uh, worked in the private sector, but was involved in the political scene down there quite a bit. Moved here uh, to Raleigh uh, two years ago, uh, have always been interested in providing choice in education and went to work for the Public Charter Schools Association and was recently named executive director. So that's interesting because that was going to be kind of my next question is how you got interested in, in school choice. Was it, uh, you know, personal experience or, or just? Well, my stepmother is a, is a school teacher and I learned a lot about education from her. But basically, I have always felt that people are happiest and, and most successful when they're able to make their own the choices for themselves rather than having them be enforced upon them uh, by any type of outside force. And that's what the basic of the charter school movement is. It's allowing parents to find the best solution for their child. Uh, You know, some people would like to say that charter schools uh, have evolved to threaten uh, traditional, conventional public schools. Nothing could be farther from the case. Charter school uh, advocates all support traditional, conventional schools. We just want to see uh, choices for parents when they don't find what they need for their child in the, tr- in the traditional school system. Now, were you a public school student growing up? I actually went to a private school. Okay. So uh, I was going to ask you what uh, your educational experience was like. So perhaps you can tell me what, what was your experience like in private school, and do you feel like that shaped at all how you see education today? Well, it, it shapes it like this. My parents beca- uh, were able to provide me with some choices, but they were able to do that only because they had been financially successful. Being having choices should not be tied to financial success in education. Parents of whatever background should be able to find a choice that meets their child's needs best. And um, so you're, there, there are a couple of organizations that are you know, charter school advocacy organizations. Mm-hmm. There's yours, obviously. And We're the best. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure that they will be happy to hear that. Uh, but then there's the North Carolina Alliance of Charter Schools. Um, right. How do you see the role of your organization uh, in terms of interacting or working with them towards the larger goal of supporting charter schools? We generally work well with the other charter organizations. Uh, we Sometimes we disagree, but, you know, among family, everybody's going to disagree. Uh, you know, we are made up exclusively of charter school leaders. Our board of directors is made up of the heads of schools or boards of directors or school leaders from uh, 12 different charter schools around the state. Uh, no other organization can say that. They were selected by their peers, and they will be selected going forward. So, you know, what I like to say about ourselves, we are of charters, by charters, for charters. So, so tell us a little bit about what you all do and what you see, especially now that you're an executive director and you're you know, taking on that mantle. What do you see as your mission or your um, main objectives going forward? We have two basic objectives. One is obviously to be the voice of charter schools 
uh, in the corridors of power in Raleigh, you know, in the General Assembly, in the Department of Public Instruction, uh, in the governor's office. We're there to watch, look, and when necessary, shout from the top of our lungs on charter school issues. Our other main goal is to help charter schools be more successful by providing them with services that they can't get elsewhere. It's interesting because I was going to ask you about uh, how you saw your role um, in terms of the charter school advisory board, because obviously they have a lot of power over what happens with charter schools. Um, what do you see your relationship with them as being? Well, you know, I have been very impressed with the um, way the charter school uh, advisory board has improved, has grown over the last year under Chairman Quigley's leadership. Um, it is, it, you know, you can see now they are really take their job seriously to make sure that every charter school is is accountable, reasonably well managed, and is providing good quality uh, education to the to the kids who go there. And so we, we were talking a little bit before the interview about uh, some recent decisions from the Charter School Advisory Board and then the State Board of Education mm -hmm. uh, regarding uh, Kennedy and Crossroads mm -hmm. um, charter schools. Um, tell us about the latest developments on that and, and what you think is going to happen. Well, you know, I, those were difficult decisions for both the Charter School Advisory Board and the State Board of Education. I, I don't think anyone relishes the opportunity to tell a school that it should close. You know, with charter schools... There has always been the understanding with the public that if a charter school was not up to snuff and it was not attracting students, then it would close from from basically from from lack of money coming from the public. However, uh, some schools have been going on and on. Uh, under Chairman Quigley's leadership, the Charter School Advisory Board is determined to make sure that these schools um, are up to snuff. Uh you know, we can talk about the particulars of Crossroads and Kennedy's, and, and there's some very good reasons they should be left open, but we, we agree with the basics of the policy. Uh, right now, both schools uh, have applied to the Office of Administrative Hearings, uh, which is their last recourse, and I wouldn't want to say what's going to happen there, but I'm sure they will receive a fair hearing. Mm -hmm. And do you think... So you said under Chairman Quigley's leadership, the, the Charter School Advisory Board's been more dedicated to ensuring the quality of charter schools, ones that are open or ones who are applying to become mm -hmm. open. Do you think that we're going to see more situations with, you know, schools who have been active for a while but maybe have some problems um, facing these non-renewals and then having to go to a last resort like this? You know, I hesitate to comment on it. That's certainly a possible. I think a lot of schools, though, will see what happened to Kennedy and Crossroads and make changes before it comes to that, before that comes to pass. Charter schools haven't been around forever. There mm -hmm. used to be a cap in North Carolina. This is actually the 20th anniversary of passage of the charter school law in North Carolina. 20 years. 20 years. Um, and so the, the cap was lifted just a few years ago. Um, 2001, 2011, yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think, if you could talk about kind of the evolution of charter schools under the cap and then how you think things have changed since it was lifted? Well, you know, we have always been in favor of lifting the cap. You know, there shouldn't be an artificial limit on charter schools. When parents are crying out for these schools, there shouldn't be an artificial limit on them. Uh, charter schools, you know, are, like I said, are 20 years old now. They, of course, started slowly. Uh, a number of the schools that, that were original schools are, are no longer there, and that's the way, as it should be. Um, but they reached the uh, 100 cap limit fairly quickly. 
and we're kind of stymied there. And it really hurt the uh, the progress of charter schools within the state because there was a lot of schools that uh, a lot of areas that would wanted a charter school couldn't get one. You know, certain charter schools grew quite large because there was there was no competition for them within the area. Uh, some of those schools now are seeing other charter schools come into their area uh, and are, are, are seeing a little competition. But competition is what charter schools are about, providing uh, a multiple choices for, for parents. So one of the things that I've been hearing and seeing is, um, you know, about where charter schools are located and, and who's getting them. So. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment, there are many more than the 100 that were under the cap. 156 brick and mortar and two virtuals. There we go. And, um, and there are some districts that have many charter schools, mm-hmm. and then there are other districts that have none. Is um, part of your organization's plan or, or part of the greater advocacy movement getting more sort of equitable distribution of charter schools? Well, it's interesting you should bring that up. It's, you know, in the recent controversy over the annual charter school report, that was one of the points that we made in comparing uh, charter schools to traditional schools. Traditional schools are all in every county, all 100 counties. Um, They're distributed fairly well by student age population. Charter schools are in 59 counties. They're heavily concentrated in our urban areas, but there are a large number of rural counties that have a very large, very popular charter school. Then there are other rural areas that don't have any at all. And in between are some rural areas that have maybe one, you know, budding charter school. Um, Because of that, comparing the statewide numbers for traditional schools in a lot of things to charter schools is a little bit problematic. And that, that's a change we would like to say. We, we think the information would be more useful to decision makers if, if, if the mathematicians could get together and figure out how to do it. Now, having said that, yes, we think that um, there are a lot of areas in the state where a charter school could benefit the entire community. Uh, some of the messages that we're hearing from rural areas is they're having problem uh, keeping people and attracting businesses is because the um, education system is not up to par. Bringing in a quality charter school can help that. And, and that's what we'd like to see in, in, in several rural areas. And you know, the, the difference really is, uh, is not, there's no grand plan for where these charter schools went. Uh, with each one of these charter schools, it was a group of parents who got together and said, we need to provide a better choice for our kids. And they formed a charter school. And in other areas, for whatever reason, it didn't happen, yep. at least not yet. So we'll be helping helping those people get started. Okay. Um, and you mentioned the charter school report. So let's talk about that. Mm-hmm. This was uh, the report that the State Board of Education was sending to the General Assembly mm-hmm. and uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest objected when they went over it because he, he said that it seemed um, – uh, negative towards charter schools generally, and then there were some changes made to the report. Well, that was the way he phrased it, but the real reason to do it was because this thing was being rammed through the State Board of Education. The Charter School Advisory Board had not had a chance to see it. The State Board itself had only had it two days before. Uh, typically, what would happen is the uh, the Charter School Advisory Board would review the report The State Board of Education would have uh, three to four weeks or even a month to review it before it was voted on. That's not what happened this time. And, you know, I I take the the, uh, interim director at his word that 
you know, he had a lot to do going on and had difficulty getting this thing together on time. And that's fine. But there was no reason to ram this this report through. And it had a lot of information that we considered um, unreliable, uh, most specifically having to do with uh, comparing charter schools to conventional schools in the matters of, of income. Uh, charter schools are not required to participate in the free and reduced lunch program. Now, let me say they are required to have a program so that if a student, so that every student can attend a charter school and no school, uh, student is denied because they, they can't supply their own free and reduced lunch. However, because they are not uh, uh, required to be in that program, they don't collect income data. And so a lot of these schools are uh, listed as zero, seven schools listed as zero. I don't think any of these schools actually were zero. Uh, a number of schools underreport. Um, when you say zero, you mean zero free and reduced lunch? Zero students? free and reduced lunch. That's because they don't collect the data, so the data said zero. Others make an effort to self-report. However, to protect themselves, they, they typically underreport. So there, there were some changes made to the report uh, mm -hmm. when it came back before the and state. And a caveat stating what I just stated was added to the, to the report. And that was one of the, the primary things that we wanted. Because if decision makers you know, in the General Assembly are going to be using this data, they need to know how reliable it is or not reliable it is. And you know, we contend that that data is not very reliable. So ultimately, are you happy with the result? You know, it's not exactly how I would have written it, as you might imagine but it was significantly improved. There's been a lot of discussion in the halls of the General Assembly about school choice, about opportunity scholarships, about charters. Um, there was the proposal floated last session for an achievement school district mm -hmm. that's still being talked about. Um, and this, uh, and the achievement school district would involve, and in some cases, a charter organization taking over some of our lowest achieving schools. That's one possibility, although something similar in, in already exists in current law. It's just never been uh, never been used before. About five years ago, the General Assembly allowed um, traditional school districts, you know, in government parlance, they're known as LEAs, to um, um, get charter-like flexibility for some of their lowest-performing schools. Uh, up until recently, no school had ever applied for that. But now uh, Burlington Alamance, I understand, has applied for uh, two of their schools. Uh, however, you know, that's a bill. The Achievement School Zone is, is one that we are watching with interest, but it really doesn't impact our members directly. Uh, however, you know, we, you know, as a general rule, we think that um, uh, the more flexibility uh, and freedom from bureaucracy charter, uh, our schools, whether it be charter or traditional, have, the better off our students are going to be. Well, it seems like, you know, this this model you're talking about that allows charter-like flexibility to mm -hmm. traditional public schools, it seems like there is some effort on the parts of policymakers or education officials to find ways to uh, use some of the strategies that charters employ in traditional public schools, which was when charter schools were created supposedly part of the reason for their creation that, you know, the, the experiments that happen in their halls can be translated to traditional public schools. Do you think we're starting to see some of that? Not enough. We would support more flexibility for traditional conventional schools. I, I was actually last week reading uh, an article on, on your website uh, about a 
former principal of the year who's going to take over uh, a distressed school. I believe it was in, in Salisbury or mm-hmm. Cabarrus down that down there. Fascinating article. One of the things I realized when I read the article was that a lot of what he was saying he needed, charter principals already have. And it would be good if he had some of those things along the lines of what the um, of what the superintendent in Alamance and Burlington has asked for. You know, when I first got involved in the charter movement about four years ago, I met a principal who had just come over from a conventional school. And I asked him why he, you know, why he made the change. And I'll never forget his answer. It was because they respect my mind here. And I think that's one of the things that we need in our system that charters provide that conventional schools could learn from is the teacher in the classroom, the principal in the school uh, is respected and not laden with a whole bunch of bureaucracy. So you mentioned earlier in the conversation um, some of the disagreement that people have over whether charters are uh, detrimental to the health of traditional public schools. And, um, you know, there's there's definitely tension between the two systems. And uh, we see that playing out in the political arena and and, Mm -hmm. newspapers and on our website. Do you think that as we move forward in this state with charter schools and we have more charter schools, that tension is going to become more pronounced? Or do you think that gradually there will be some sort of equilibrium reached? Well, if we have anything to say about it, that tension that you mentioned would definitely would definitely decrease. Uh, I recognize it is there. Uh, I see it all the time as a charter advocate. Um, however, it's really harming the education of our children. Traditional, conventional school advocates really need to see charters as allies rather than competitors because that's what we are. And that's the attitude that charter advocates, charter operators, almost everybody involved in the charter movement takes is we are allies of the traditional school system, not competitors. Okay. Well, Lee, thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. Lee Teague is the recently named executive director of the North Carolina Public Charter Schools Association. And I'm Alex Granados, reporter for Education NC, and you've been listening to Ed Talk.